This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Every town, the town in which you and I live, in the north, south, east, or west, our homes, our work, our recreations make every town what it is. Every town is on the move, swinging in the rhythm of these United States. Yet in every town, happiness and security are challenged daily by an enemy. For the past year, we've been consumed by the pandemic. Our normal lives have been upended. Schools and offices closed. Entire industries have ground to a halt. We've retreated to our homes. Life, in a lot of ways, has stopped moving forward. Take this podcast, for example. We were just starting on a new season of Clear Story when COVID hit. But now, we're back with a bunch of new shows. And the first thing on our minds? Will our lives and our homes be changed forever? I mean, nothing quite like this has ever happened before, right? From this old house, this is Clear Story, your home in a new light. So if you're like me, you've set up a home office, your dining room is now a remote school, and there are hand sanitizing and mask stations by the door. But as strange as all of this still feels, our homes have already been significantly shaped by previous pandemics. Actually, a lot about the way we live is due to the fact that we have been here before. And our homes just incorporated the changes and made them seem normal. Every design, every dimension we see in our houses or in the streets or in parks, what are the origins of those ideas? Sarah Carr is an assistant professor of architecture at Northeastern University and the author of the forthcoming book, The Topography of Wellness, How Health and Disease Shaped the American Landscape. She thinks a lot about how illness has changed the way we live. What were the health preoccupations at the time? What were diseases that the United States was dealing with? And how did that manifest itself in the built environment? We take it for granted that kitchens have tile or that there's porcelain in a bathroom. But have you ever stopped to wonder why? Sarah says the design of our homes has the fingerprints of earlier epidemics all over them. And it's been happening this way for centuries. I mean, we can really go all the way back to the ancient Greeks, right? Hippocrates of 400 BC, the father of of modern medicine. Do no harm, Hippocrates. Yeah, do no harm, Hippocrates. um, Talked about the importance of having clean air and clean water, living in climates that had dry air, uh, not humid air. Benedictine monks, planted gardens in their monasteries because they thought it was beneficial to their health as well. 
the Greeks built hospitals that were looking out on oceans. So for a long time, actually, you know, up through the Industrial Revolution, there was still this idea that we always look to clean air and clean water. Throughout history, we've generally understood that fresh air is good for us. But we didn't really understand what was bad. And some of the biggest events that change the way we live have to do with those mysterious bad things, like disease. Up until the middle 1800s, we still believed what Hippocrates thought, that bad odor, or miasma, caused illness. Walk by a rotting cow carcass on the street? Well, that foul smell could give you malaria or cholera. It's not all that surprising because during the Industrial Revolution, as people moved from the country to cities like New York, life was chaotic. Schools were built next to factories and slaughterhouses. People lived in cramped housing, and the streets were filthy. So you have people throwing garbage out in the streets. Most people had outhouses at the time. So there's people taking household waste out into their backyards. There's one account from New York in the 1860s, and there was what's called a sanitary surveyor was talking about the street, and he said it was was made up of bones and oyster shells and rats fur and mud all together. Lovely. Yeah, lovely. You know, that carcasses in the street because the slaughterhouses had no place to put their waste. And a lot of slaughterhouses were located next to bodies of water at the time because they could just dump the waste into the water. There was a saying during the time where people would say the solution to pollution is dilution. I can almost hear the jingle from the uh, late 1800s. The solution to pollution is dilution. (laughs) So what happened as, as a result of this really rapid industrialization of this large population influx into the city was diseases like cholera and yellow fever spread. Cholera attacks the intestines and causes severe dehydration from vomiting and diarrhea. It had already swept through India and London. And in the early 1830s, it showed up in New York. It was extremely violent. You could be fine one day, two days later you could be dead. So it was was terrifying to people living there at the time. Today, we know that cholera is caused by bacteria, usually found in drinking water contaminated by sewage. And we know that good sanitation can prevent the disease. But back then, remember, they thought illness was spread by bad odors. And since people were tossing garbage and feces and animal carcasses onto the street, places like New York and Boston smelled really bad. Newspapers reported that residents fled cities in droves. But it also spurred this movement to sanitize the city as much as possible and to take sanitation and sanitary engineering very, very seriously. So they looked to places like London, they looked to places like Paris, who were installing large underground waste infrastructure pipes that would just take the waste away as as quickly as possible, put it under the ground so people didn't have to deal with it anymore. This wasn't the first time a city had looked to clean up. After the 1783 yellow fever outbreak, Philadelphia built its celebrated waterworks. It was a massive project, not only to deliver clean water, but to flush miasmas off the street. 
complete with underground wooden pipes and steam engines, the project encouraged other cities to follow suit. Now in New York, to accommodate new underground sanitation pipes, city streets became wider and straighter and smoother. An article in the New York Times from 1860 describes an ideal pavement as one that allows for surface cleaning and drainage and seals up the earth below. Or else, quote, it will collect and hold the filth and liquids of the street and reek with poisonous miasmas. Goodbye, cobblestones. Hello, pavement. So as our water infrastructure was changed, so was the design of our houses and apartment buildings where people were trying to make sure they had sinks and toilets in in every apartment building. You would see articles in magazines like Ladies Home Journal or Godey's Lady Book encouraging women to bathe because it was culturally acceptable, right? It was, it was culturally sophisticated. <laughs> Are we getting municipal systems built into our cities now for the first time where we have big water plants bringing fresh water and big sewage plants removing yes. dirty water? Sanitation engineers at this time sort of became real rock stars because they were, you know, seen as a profession that could save uh, save the city. So a, a very famous one was George Waring, who was a sanitary engineer, and he became the sanitation director for New York City. He actually commandeered a fleet of street sweepers that he called the White Wings. These were sanitation workers. They were just picking up garbage in the streets, sweeping them down. Um, But he would have them dress in all-white outfits to give off the the appearance of of sanitation, right, and and cleanliness. White uh, being maybe the uniform in the medical profession, in hospitals, white being clean. Um, So send that message. George Waring, our, our Dr. Fauci of today, sort of the public face of this big, large program of what we need to do to stay healthy, stay clean. Yes, except he was a civil engineer. So imagine if we elevated civil engineers to the status of Dr. Fauci. Sanitation engineers weren't the only rock stars of this era. In 1885, Harriet Hodge Plunkett wrote a book called Women, Plumbers, and Doctors. It was actually a plumbing guide for women, and it was telling women that they needed to be responsible for the health of their house, so they needed to know as much as the plumbers did, because all the plumbing, right, was in the kitchen and in the bathrooms, and that was their space. And so they needed to be familiar with the engineering to ensure the health of their families. So the women of the house were the chief engineers, making sure that the water that came in was clean, the water that was going out um, was removed properly. That became one of their core functions. That's fascinating. Knowing knowing where the pipes were um, and knowing how to fix it. A lot of us think of our kitchens and bathrooms as bright, clean spaces with a lot of tile and porcelain. But that's not what early bathrooms look like. Picture lots of dark wood. And upholstery. And, you know, if you're also thinking about bathrooms as a status symbol at the time, too, they're going to be as well-decorated as another room in the house. Did you say upholstery in the bathroom? Like, you talk about couches? <laughs> well, no, like benches, right? Or oh. maybe, a, a, you know, upholstery. But carpets also, right? Or we're thinking about wood wainscoting. Don't, don't get me started with the house I grew up in that had carpeting <laughs> on the bathroom floor with seven children and five boys. Oh, my gosh. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I, have, I have one, and I can only imagine. George Wary needs to send men in white suits to tear that bathroom out right now. So cholera brings indoor plumbing and private bathrooms. The next big influence on our homes, that's after the break. <laughs> 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It takes several waves of cholera to get sanitation infrastructure built and indoor plumbing into our homes. But that was a major step towards increasing life expectancy and making our homes more comfortable. Another huge shift in the way we live came from something called germ theory. Basically, it's just the idea that instead of these bad smells, disease is caused by tiny microscopic organisms that we can't see and somehow, through various means, invade our body and make us sick. Elizabeth Yuko is a bioethicist, and she's written a lot about epidemics and how they've changed our homes. She says germ theory was a little slow to catch on. Because when you were thinking in terms of these foul smells, it was something tangible you could experience. Like, oh, I smell that rotting pig carcass in the alley. Like, that's bad. That's where disease and illness comes from. But then you try to convince people that these tiny things that they can't see and that only scientists can see using a special instrument, that's what's actually making them sick. Eventually, people accepted the science of germ theory and that the newly installed home toilet wasn't a gateway to disease-ridden fumes and death. Before you knew it, residents embraced all the conveniences that came with indoor plumbing. Not having to go outside in the middle of the night or use a pot under your bed and then smell it the rest of the night. Yeah, it was definitely more enticing. You know, the idea that you didn't have to go to a well to get water, you just turn a tap and it comes out, was kind of amazing. Have you ever been in a home that was built before the 1850s and wondered why is the bathroom so big? Well, it's because that used to be a bedroom or a study that was converted into this new room. The idea was to make this room where you do the unthinkable inside your house as comfortable and presentable as possible and to try to get you to forget what you're doing in there. Homes during this period also had a lot of wallpaper with intricate patterns and muted colors. And it was practical. Part of the reason for this particular very busy design is because flies were such a big problem inside the house that the wallpaper masked fly stains. And so, you know, if you smeared a fly on your wall or it just died, you wouldn't really be able to see it as much because you've got this this really busy wallpaper and, you know, no one's going to be looking for fly corpse remains when they're looking at these pretty patterns. Makes you think about wallpaper a little differently, doesn't it? Now, bathrooms at the turn of the century were dark. 
Toilets and tubs were surrounded by wood. There were heavy draperies and rugs. But with the acceptance of germ theory, that became an issue. And, you know, Victorians liked to accessorize, doilies. You know, it, it was fussy. There was stuff everywhere. It was hard to clean. At first, it's not like you could just, like, wipe the wood. It's going to be carved. And you know how, car, you know, you're dusting, you're trying to, like, stuff gets stuck in there. It's not great. And it also looked like a germ factory. People decided that if they could see the dirt, well, they can control disease. And so we swung from dark to light specifically white tiles, some white paint. So walls were painted white that made them easier to clean, made it easier for the for people to see the dirt and know where to clean. Also, when you went to someone's home or something else and you saw these clean white walls, you weren't wondering, like, are they clean people? You could see it. An advertisement for standard porcelain enamel baths from the early 1900s has a picture of a modern-looking bathroom. There's a pedestal sink, an enameled tub, and a porcelain toilet. The ad promotes the bathtub's snowy purity and the beauty of design and finish that outshines old-fashioned dingy tubs. Architect Sarah Carr says it was all about cleanliness. So you want porcelain that's sealed and easy to wipe down. This is when toilets, you know, were not sort of the wooden tank that was high above the toilet bowl, but more of the compact porcelain that you could wipe down. Instead of bathtubs being on claw feet, instead they are sealed to the ground so you can wipe around all the caulking and the corners. And I mean, interestingly enough, these are still principles we use in healthcare design. You don't want corners to build up dust. You want everything to be able to be wiped down. You don't want any porous materials because that's where the germs go. And so it reflects this change of thinking um, and this change in acceptance of how we actually get sick. That's fascinating, the clawfoot tub. Um, This is a pet peeve of mine because if we ever take one of these things out of a project, people go absolutely bonkers um, that we've lost the clawfoot (laughs) tub. And I've always said, well, they're just not that comfortable. Are they cleaning under it? Are they the ones? Well, now I'm just horrified, right? The dust bunnies and the germ theory underneath the clawfoot tub. So you give me ammunition to come back to these folks and say clawfoot tubs are not just impractical, but they're incredibly unsanitary. Thank you, Sarah. Saying this as as somebody that cleans their house and would not want to be cleaning under the cloth. Right. I never even thought about it for a guy who's never cleaned my house. (laughs) I've never thought about going You want to admit that? (laughs) I just did. I've cleaned my house a lot, but I don't clean the bathroom. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, going underneath the cloth foot tub, that's horrific. You can't, Mm -hmm. like, that's that's like as bad as under the stove. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a real principle in healthcare design is you want, you know, what's called continuous surfaces. Like you don't even want seams in countertops. And the material is, it's a dramatic change if you think about, you know, mm-hmm. cleaning a sink made out of porcelain versus anything made out of wood. That must have been revolutionary. I mean, I find it fascinating as, as an architect, sort of what spaces become more desirable and how does that change uh, their design? So as I mentioned, the bathroom as a changeover from a status symbol, right, to actually like a place of hygiene and a, and a place of cleaning. People started to think about the function a room performs and designed for that. Take the kitchen. In the early 1900s, food preparation was dirty business. Chickens were plucked and beheaded. Refrigeration was a block of ice, and poor hygiene meant foodborne illnesses hit an all-time high. 
But in 1904, the subway tile was designed for the New York City transit system, and Elizabeth Yuko says it quickly showed up in kitchens. This was more the case in restaurants or public kitchens, having that white tile to signal to the diners, we're clean, you can see it, we're clean. This is like a hospital, it's like a lab in here. The waitresses are dressed as nurses, you're fine. Because you know you know what you're cooking when it's in your own home, but when you're trusting someone else to cook at a time when people are dying from eating food, that was very important. They didn't forget about the floors either. When you had wooden floors all over most of the house, again, there are little cracks and crevices where dust and dirt, and then, you know, presumably germs could live and make it harder to clean. So those were swapped for either tiles or, a little bit later on, linoleum. These previous pandemics and the acceptance of germ theory transformed the way we lived. Our homes became cleaner, sanitation improved, and as a result, we lived longer. But we still weren't prepared for the worst pandemic to hit before COVID and its impact is still reflected in our homes today. When we come back. The 1918 flu pandemic killed 50 million people, and it infected a third of the world's population. Schools closed. Volunteers sewed masks. People isolated at home. Sound familiar? I think it's not a surprise that we often hear the Spanish flu invoked when we're talking about COVID-19. And in fact, a lot of the changes that came to buildings such as homes and schools in response to the pandemic are proven to be helpful again. Sarah Carr says the 1918 pandemic focused attention on ventilation. Signs were posted in cities asking residents to open their windows and let fresh air in. I live in an older house and I'm looking at my window right now and there's a radiator right under the window. And that's an innovation that comes out of the flu pandemic because people were encouraged to open their windows even while you had the heat running because the idea was to get in fresh air and ventilation. So if you have your radiator right underneath the window, then you can still sort of form like a, uh, a heat barrier. Because people were very worried about, especially sick people, the air that you're exhaling. And if you inhale it again, they thought that was one of the reasons that people were getting sick. So fresh air is so important. Make sure you open the windows. A lot of us, you know, are going to suffer in the winter if we do that. So put Mm -hmm. the heating element right in front of the window and try to balance that out. Mm Mm-hmm. That explains a lot of really hot nights in New York apartments. Well, there, yeah. And it's also with the heating load, right? So they're designed to make up for the cool air that would be let in during the winter. So that's something, you know, if you're listening to this and you're in an older house, especially on the East Coast, that's probably something you'll notice where you live. We incorporated better ventilation, white tiles, and easy-to-clean surfaces into our homes. And all of that came together during another epidemic. Tuberculosis. I got the blues, the TB blues. I got the heebie-jeebie TB blues. Tuberculosis has been around for thousands of years. But at the turn of the century, TB killed one in seven people. It's a bacteria that infects the lungs, and it's spread by coughing. Treatment at the time was fresh air, sunlight, 
in quarantine. Building to that special day when the dark can say be on your way. Architect Sarah Carr says sanatoria, or hospital-like facilities, sprung up to care for the sick. Between 1900 and 1925, there were 675,000 recuperation beds in the U.S. A lot of the early tuberculosis sanitaria had, again, white walls, wide plate glass windows that could open, large porches so patients could actually sit out in their beds on the porch and access the, the fresh air and sunlight. And again, this idea of seamless surfaces, like we just talked about in the bathroom, that could be cleaned down. If you think about you know long white walls, lots of light, lots of windows, lots of fresh air, you start to see a connection between those tuberculosis sanitaria and the modernist movement. A lot of the, the modernists took inspiration from the form of these tuberculosis hospitals. The modernist architectural movement featured big windows, steel, and reinforced concrete. It was form follows function. Homes and buildings had flat roofs, balconies, and garden terraces. And it embraced what Hippocrates had preached, the benefits of fresh air. And I think just a larger acceptance of, again, how these diseases originated. It takes a while to figure things out. I mean, we were all living through science in action through COVID-19. It was only a year ago that we were probably sanitizing our groceries, right, and leaving them in quarantine before we brought them into the house. And now that's not a concern for most people anymore. But these earlier epidemics, they become trends and they become kind of baked into the styles of houses at a time because it took a while to figure out what was happening. I can think of not only projects that we've done, but houses we've toured, you know, the Bauhaus movement, Walter Gropius, you know, we did a house in his vernacular. We visited a modern home designed by Richard Neutra. The Health House in the Los Angeles. House. Yeah, yeah, he designed the Health House in Los Angeles. Yeah. And, and I was fascinated to read that his father died in the Spanish flu. So how top of mind must this have been for these people who were losing family members or neighbors uh, or seeing it all around them, thinking that we have to build in a way to protect ourselves and to make us more healthy. And it's a pretty powerful movement, the modern movement. I mean, it's still with us today in terms of its influence of our homes. Fascinating to think that it may have come out of a defensive posture against pandemics, airborne diseases, or germ theory. One of the pioneers of modern architecture, Le Corbusier, designed La Villa Savoie outside of Paris in 1929. The house sits on piers, so it appears to float in the air. Sarah says the home embodied some of Le Corbusier's belief in fresh air, sunlight, and cleanliness. There's a sink when you enter, so uh, it's actually a whole floor below the living space. You can't even get up to the living space unless you have washed your hands. The air had to be 64.4 degrees Fahrenheit at all times. There had to be eight liters of air (laughs) that would go through the uh, apartment every so often for what he called exact respiration. So many square meters of plate glass per apartment, too, because he wanted to make sure that just the right amount of sunlight got in. And these measurements were largely arbitrary. 
Our homes started to look more antiseptic. We adopted materials and colors more suited to hospitals and labs. Furniture was on casters or built in, making it easier to clean. And Neutra and Corbusier's fixation on ventilation and sunlight was everywhere. But I think what this shows is, you know, people were becoming very obsessed with vaccinations at the time, and again, this germ theory. And so he's thinking about sun and air as something that can be delivered in a a vaccination-like dose. If we can point to previous pandemics like cholera, TB, and the flu as transforming our homes, it's hard not to wonder how COVID will leave its mark. And the past year has been like watching those 150 years compressed in one, just because of how fast the information moves. People were getting sick and nobody knew why. Was it the density? Was it the surfaces? Was it public transit? Now we know that is not the issue. And then we also saw it move from cities to suburbs to rural places as well. Today, we have the benefit of science, technology, and communication, so we don't have to suffer through years of illness before making our homes healthier. But Sarah says this past year also highlighted how we moved away from some of the lessons we learned during those earlier outbreaks. Recently, she surveyed schools outside of Boston. And what was really interesting was that the schools that were built uh, you know, earlier in the 1900s they would actually be able to be naturally ventilated because they had those windows, right? Whereas schools that were built in the 70s and the 80s and 90s where you're more dependent on HVAC systems, right, to completely control the environment, there would be no way to naturally ventilate them, right? They're they're completely closed off. So just because the pandemics change, just because the, the epidemics change, if we have these sort of basic provisions of fresh air and uh, fresh water and sunlight, it can go a long way. Just like those previous pandemics, COVID has caused millions of Americans to move. We're leaving big cities, packing up to smaller towns and suburbs in search of less dense housing and fresh air. Places like Chicago, Boston, and San Francisco have seen hundreds of thousands of residents move out. New York had more residents leave in 2020 than the previous two years combined. Now, we started this episode talking about how we've all been cooped up at home with remote school and work. So maybe one big change that will come out of this pandemic is infrastructure, bolstering broadband, the Internet. I think during COVID, we realized that we needed this technology for remote learning, for remote working, to buy groceries, for telehealth. Um, We needed it for, for just about everything. Cyrus Panaroyo is an assistant professor of architecture at the University of Michigan, and he studies how urban life is influenced by network technologies. And so because of that increased dependency, I think we could see like how our infrastructure was being stretched in all directions and not actually able to serve everyone properly. This past year, towns have scrambled to get kids connected from home. Businesses that have survived moved to e-commerce. Lots of us would be out of a job if we couldn't work online. You know, I hope that we can see after this pandemic how dependent people are on this infrastructure. I think that the challenge is, you know, can we come together and agree on how this infrastructure is deployed and how we make it accessible? And I think right now there's disagreement about whether or not there should be a public utility or remain a private amenity. And that was the same case with electricity. You know, at one point it was 
private. And then at, at some point, there was a decision made that because it was so crucial to our daily life, that it had to become a utility. Nothing exactly like COVID has ever happened before to us. But pandemics, well, they aren't new. They've shaped our homes and our world for centuries. And our houses, well, they're already showing signs of change spurred by this pandemic. The home office, well, it probably stays. Our open floor plans, they might be a little less open. And outdoor living areas, well, they'll likely grow in popularity. In the future, maybe a sink by the back door will become a thing, or a bonus room that doubles as a guest room and an isolation area. Doesn't sound so sci-fi now, does it? Drop us an email at clearstory at thisoldhouse.com to let us know what you think of this episode and if there's anything else you want us to explore. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to Clear Story and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Clear Story was produced for This Old House by Catherine Fenelosa at Rococo Punch. Production support came from James Trout, Andrea Aswahe, Chris Ermides, and Sarah Chase. And thanks to our guests, Sarah Carr, Elizabeth Yuko, and Cyrus Penaroyo. Archival audio courtesy of the National Library of Medicine. I'm Kevin O'Connor. More next week. Check out the latest This Old House episodes on your local PBS station and on the Roku channel. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube for more from our home improvement experts. Sign up for our email newsletter at thisoldhouse.com.